This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the March 14th, 1943 edition of CBS World News Today. It includes updates on the war from Algiers, Australia, London, Washington, and New York. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. So thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. World News Today, brought to you by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas stations, as well as the leading news centers of our own country, CBS correspondents are waiting to bring you a complete report from the world's political and battlefronts. But first, here's Doug Edwards. On the Russian front, the Battle of Kharkov is nearing a climax. The Germans claim that the bulk of the steel city is in their hands, but there's no confirmation of that from Moscow. In the southwest Pacific, MacArthur's bombers are pressing their attack on another Japanese convoy. Flying fortresses report direct hits on enemy cargo vessels. In North Africa, Rommel's artillery has increased its activity in the Merritt area, while Allied forces have repulsed Axis attacks in North Tunisia. But the most important development in that war zone is a speech made by General Giraud. For details, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Algiers, Charles Collingwood reporting. This is Charles Collingwood at Allied Force Headquarters in North Africa. An hour ago, General Giraud made the most important declaration of policy that has been made in North Africa since the Casablanca Conference. General Giraud's speech was about France. It was also about North Africa. But the heart of the speech was about France and what was going to happen when France is liberated from German domination. In his dry, precise, rather high-pitched voice, Giraud said, I give the most solemn assurance to the people of France that their sacred right to choose their own provisional government themselves will be fully safeguarded. I assure them that the conditions permitting them to make this choice in lawful order and with their freedoms restored will be guaranteed. I am the servant of the French people, General Giraud said. I am not their leader. Now we shall be servants of the provisional government, and we undertake to deliver to it our powers. That's what Giro said about France after the coming Allied invasion. What it means, and why it is so important, is that North Africa won't happen again. It means that when we enter France, and it's rather odd to hear this from Giro, we will not bring with us a hand-picked leader to impose upon the French people. 
nor will we treat with and protect the existing government, as we did in North Africa. Instead, we will promptly allow the French to pick their own provisional government, and General Giraud has promised to turn over all his powers to that government. This statement of Giraud's has obviously been agreed upon with the Allied authorities. If it means what it says, it can only mean that we have learned the lesson that you do not really purchase tranquility by perpetuating quizzlings or achieve national spirit under a leader of your, not their, choosing. Of most immediate interest to the people of North Africa in Giro's speech is the passage in which the general formally declared all legislation made by the Vichy government after the fall of France null and void. In other words, as soon as the proper decrees have been drawn up, all of the tyrannical fascist laws of Vichy will be abolished, the anti-Jewish laws among them. The municipal assemblies and other democratic institutions will begin to function again. And, as Giro said, France will become again the France of human liberties and the France of noble ideals. As you can see, it was a speech about France, the future of France. To the great unanswered question of what part is General de Gaulle going to play in all this, General Giraud made no direct answer. He did not even bring himself to mention de Gaulle by name. But he did say, with all my heart, I desire the union of Ireland. This union is a fact. It is a question of life or death for our country. And he said, there can only be one French army facing Germany, whether it comes from Algeria or from Libya. It was an interesting speech. The abrogation of the Vichy laws will do much to make North Africa a better place to live in. But most important of all, this speech of Giro is an indication that when we go into France, we will not make the same mistakes we have made in North Africa. This is Charles Collingwood returning you to New York. More news in just a moment, but first here's Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. It will be interesting to check the actions reported in today's news and see how many there are in which Admiral might have been represented. An American destroyer blasting a Jap transport out of the water... American planes winging their way over Nazi-occupied Europe. American tanks battering the German line in Africa. In all of these actions, admiral products for victory might be found fighting alongside American men. Radio equipment from portable stations carried by hand to giant land-based transmitters. Electronic instruments pointing out the path for American planes and tanks, locating targets, firing guns. These instruments are the Admiral products for victory on the battlefronts. Admiral is capable of building them because Admiral has been devoted to a single purpose throughout the years, the purpose of making each radio better than the last. Nationally known radio and electronic engineers and research technicians have long been employed to carry out this aim. How well they have succeeded is told not alone by the many features which are Admiral's exclusively, not alone by saying an Admiral Radio is America's smart set, rather by the simple fact that Admiral is capable of building the intricate radio and electronic equipment demanded by the Army and Navy. It is told also in the thousands of Admiral products for victory on all battlefronts, fighting alongside American men in all branches of the service. Now, here again for Admiral is Doug Edwards. Today's news from Russia centers on the flaming battle for Kharkov. 
and there's no doubt but that the situation is serious for the Red Army. The newspaper Pravda reports that Soviet forces have retreated to new lines both west and north of Kharkov. This withdrawal came after the Germans brought up fresh divisions from the west. Moscow's latest communique reports that the Nazis on one sector thrust a wedge into Russian defenses, but the position was regained by a Soviet counterattack. The communique says that Soviet troops are courageously beating off the onslaught of numerically superior forces of enemy tanks and motorized infantry. In this hemisphere, there have been some developments in South America. For a direct report, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Rio de Janeiro, John Adams reporting. American business and military men arriving in Rio from the States are all greatly impressed by the signs of war activity along the Brazilian coast, from Belém to Fortaleza, Natal, and Recife. Hundreds of planes are passing daily along what is called the Victory Route, via Brazil to Africa and the scattered battlefronts. Uniforms are everywhere, and thousands of those who are not in uniforms are joining the army of rubber workers that are being transported to the upper reaches of the Amazon to help harvest the rubber crop. Great quantities of which are incidentally being transported daily from Manaus to Miami by cargo planes. In Rio, however, visitors seem most impressed by the gasoline shortage the great amount of new buildings going up, and finally, the luxurious fact that they can drink 5, 10, or 15 cups of coffee a day if they want it. Yes, there will always be coffee to drink in Brazil, and as long as the war lasts, coffee will also be war news. It's perhaps a touchy subject to you in the States who are rationed, but it is also a touchy subject here, where it is one of the pillars of the national economy, a pillar that wobbles if the crop cannot be sold and shipped. It was therefore big news in Sao Paulo yesterday when the Brazilian finance minister, Sousa Costa, announced that the coffee accord reached with the United States last October would be put into effect shortly. By that accord, the U.S. was to acquire the unshipped balance of last year's crop, totaling about 2,300,000 bags, or about 150,000 tons, as well as the 1942-43 crop of 9 million bags, or about 500,000 tons. We take you now to CBS Australia. George Murad reporting. Today from Australia, we present Captain Raymond E. Holsey of Athos, Oklahoma, who holds the outstanding record of 51 bombing missions against the Japanese. Just a few days ago, over the shark-infested Bismarck Sea, his flying fortress has set a place 350 miles from home base and five of his crew were wounded. But he came in with all hands safe in the charged coffin of his plane. Part of the wings and all of the bearings burned out. How did you do it, Ray? Uh, <clears throat> well, my co-pilot, Lieutenant Brian Reed, and crew fought the fire. But here's what happened. We were out near New Britain making our first run on a big, fat transport. I call zeros, 12 or 14 But I thought, no, what the heck, information and zeros Just as we got the bombs away, one of the next guy in... Two or three good words. First, I smelled smoke. Then the engineer opened the door into the bomb day compartment, and the flame just about took his hair off. They had hit the hydraulic fluid line, and it had done burning oil all over the bomb day. Were you scared? Boy, you can see that again. We couldn't jump over that convoy. The nip would have shot us clean out of our chute. So I told Charlie Giddings in the next ship that I'd try a crash landing on a little island. He pulled me down, giving me encouragement all the time. But once he, he made the kind of sort. Yeah, uh, I tell you, it's getting kind of hot in here, Charlie. He came back with that old dog. Yeah, it is. Looks a little warm in there. 
We went down to 300 feet when the boys beat the fire out with a CO2 bottle and they went a flying ship. That's about all. Well, see, nothing to it. But the Bruins tell me you landed with nothing but fresh air between the nose and tail. I guess you did look kind of bad, but those old B-17s can show it The communique yesterday says another eight-ship camera has been sent with approaching WeWAC and hit. Do you think the lips will keep coming in? Oh, sure, but we'll keep knocking them off just as long as we have plans. Just give us a shift, that's all. Thank you, Captain Raymond E. Holson. This is George L. Morad in Australia. I return you to CBS in New York. Back in this country, one of our naval flyers is experimenting with a Jap Zero fighter plane captured in the Southwest Pacific. For a direct report on this enemy plane, Admiral Radio takes you now to a naval air station near Washington at Anacostia, Bill Slocum, Jr., reporting. A few months ago, in an Aleutian marsh, a Japanese pilot tried to land a Zero and broke his neck immediately and completely, which is a great line to start any broadcast with. Happily, he broke nothing but his neck, and therefore, standing sleek and anemic in a hangar here at Anacostia, is a Japanese Zero airplane, made in Japan in February 1942. Right now, the Navy's test experts are flying the Zero and are also testing every square inch of hull and every single instrument aboard. This is, of course, exhaustive work, but not as exhaustive as it might be because there are an awful lot of gadgets aboard the Navy knows quite well. It should, because they were made in America. In a moment, we're going to talk to Lieutenant Commander Tommy Booth, who has been flying this Zero after returning from an interesting and successful mission in North Africa. For a second, let's take a look at some of the things you and I have heard about this super plane. There is, for instance, the story of the heroic Japs who fly these winged monsters with only a speedometer and a compass to guide them. There are several appropriate English colloquialisms that come to mind, but for the nonce, we'll just use hooey. The Jap pilot has as many aids to flying and navigation as the American. Now, Commander Booth, how about the motor and the propeller on this Zero? The propeller is an exact and perfect copy of our own Hamilton Standard. The engine is a combination of Pratt and Whitney and Wright. Commander, you've been flying this thing. How does it handle? It flies like a trainer. It flies very easily, in fact, at low altitudes and is extremely maneuverable. It's a very neat little job. Commander, would you want to fly it in combat? No, and I might add once more, no. First of all, it's the same as putting two small cannons behind my ears and two machine guns in my hands and saying, go up and fight. There is absolutely no protection in the Zero, not one single piece of armor, and there is a terrific fire hazard. Our gas tanks are self-sealing. Zero tanks are not, and one bullet will turn a Zero into a furnace. Well, I'm for that. How about some statistics on the Zero, Commander? Things the Japs know, but American citizens don't know. She'll do about 328 miles an hour. That F-4U over there, that's the Corsair, will do better. The Zero can get up to 38,000 feet, and she weighs 5,550 pounds. Her firepower is low. She has two small cannons and two machine guns. How does she compare to American ships of a similar type and purpose? Our fighters are heavier, but they are better protected. There is no compromise in a Jap plane with pilot's safety. And if he's hit, he's dead. We like to give our boys a break with armor protection. 
And our planes are more heavily armed. And above all, we have those leak-proof tanks. Could you say a kind word for the Zero? Indeed, I could. She's easy to handle, and she's well-built. The parts are smaller and considerably more compact. She's a tough job to repair. They must use midget Japs to build them. That, then, is the story of the vaunted Jap Zero, right from the jockey's mouth, so to speak. She can run, and she's easy to handle, but she just hasn't got the class to run with heavier, better-built American thoroughbreds. That's why the Yanks are knocking down four zeros to every one of their own that is lost. And a dead zero invariably means a dead Jap, which isn't the case with our boys in planes. I return you now to CBS in New York and Doug Edwards. Across the Atlantic, Allied planes seem to have given Germany and occupied Europe another night of rest. For a direct report on developments in the British capital, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS London. Bob Trout reporting. London is having a fairly quiet Sunday. A few German raiders were over England's southeast coast region last night while planes of Royal Air Force Bomber Command were out laying mines in enemy waters. But there is no word of activity during the day, either over here or across the channel over there. Although people who live on the southeast coast heard a series of loud explosions from across the channel today. This week just past has been marked by the arrival in London of some unusual reports of French resistance to the Germans in France. Put together, they tell a remarkable story, as you know. However, the belief in London is that all the events reported this week did not necessarily happen this week. In other words, it seems true that the underground struggle against the Germans continues steadily in France, but we should not take for granted that a great uprising is now taking place. You know that Great Britain has, for nearly three years, followed the policy of not encouraging a real French revolt too early in the game, while the Germans are still in a position to crush it. It is true that General de Gaulle has now called for a revolt, but what is behind this is not yet public knowledge. The French National Committee in London has also sent another memorandum to General Giraud, emphasizing that the fighting French here are not interested in personal rivalries and setting forth the conditions under which the fighting French and the North and West African French could unite against the enemy. A good many people in London expected a good deal from General Giraud in his speech today. Reports of that speech are still coming into London, and it hasn't been generally read here, much less studied. But from the early reports, it seems that General Giraud lived up to the advanced expectations in Britain in such matters as ending the Vichy fascist laws and announcing that France can choose its own government after the war. But we've had no reports here that General Giraud announced a new and more liberal regime in North Africa, as had been predicted. And now back to CBS New York and Doug Edwards. In this country, the Navy has reported new action in the Solomons and the Aleutians, and the President is meeting with Anthony Eden. For this news and other developments, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Washington, Lee White reporting. Curtis P. Forter... P-40 fighter planes, the Navy's just announced, have carried out two attacks on Japanese positions on Kiska in the Aleutian Islands. The same communique also reports seven more American raids on enemy positions in the Solomons. At 2.30 p.m., just as this broadcast came on the air, a special nonpartisan delegation of senators called at the White House to submit to Messrs. Roosevelt and Eden their plan for bringing about a lasting peace. In a word, the Senate is ready to pledge itself to wholehearted American participation in some international body to keep the peace as soon as the war is won. 
in other words, to the establishment of some successor to the League of Nations. This would seem to indicate a different spirit in Congress today from that which dominated the body in 1918. Then, Congress' main desire was to return to pre-war isolationism. Today, our Congress, while still tinged with isolationism, is prepared to admit the necessity, as well as the inevitability, of some international cooperation. Among other things, the Senate's program envisions temporary commissions to administer the affairs of liberated countries until popular governments can be freely chosen, adequate machinery for peacefully settling disputes between nations, and a United Nations police force to prevent aggression. The plan will be introduced in Congress on Tuesday. Tomorrow, joint bills will be introduced in both the House and Senate proposing the creation of a new office of Assistant Secretary of Commerce for small business. The bill appears to have the support of the Patman Committee of the House. And now here in our New York studio is Columbia's military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott. The struggle for Kharkov continues, and the tenacity of the Russian resistance once more emphasizes the resisting powers of the modern city as a defensive strong point. The Germans appear determined to take Kharkov at any cost as indeed they well may be, for upon their ability to take and hold this vital communications center depends their ability to maintain the whole of their positions in the Donetsk Basin. The reason for the Russian numerical inferiority reported in this area is undoubtedly the fact that the Russian armies have outrun their communications. The retiring Germans appear to have carried out extensive and very thorough demolitions of the railways, which the Russians have not had time to repair. The early thaws have added to the problem of the Russian engineers attempting to carry out this heavy task. But the Germans have well-organized rail lines directly at their backs, and they are far closer to their sources of power in Germany than they were at Stalingrad or down in the Caucasus. Hence, they can develop more powerful efforts in the Kharkov region than the Russians can for the moment. The Germans, as always, are fighting against the time limit. They must take Kharkov before the Russians can repair the railways and bring up their reserves. Probably one of the major checks to the German onset so far has been pressure against their northern flank by Russian forces operating from the direction of Akhturst and Sumy, northwest of Kharkov. But now the Germans claim the recapture of Akhturst, which indicates that they have had to extend their flank to the north and clear out these Russian forces. Sumy is still in Russian hands, however, and while it remains so, will be a threat to the Germans. There are indications that the Germans are having to send additional reinforcements into the Kharkov sector. Reinforcements which, of course, they hope to withdraw before the troops are required to meet any new responsibility in the West. Indeed, it is plain that the whole German purpose in committing such powerful forces to the Russian front has been, first, to stave off the disaster which threatened their army in the Donetsk area if the Russians reached the Dnieper, as seemed almost certain two weeks ago, and second, to stabilize the South Russian front so as to permit the transfer of troops either to the north or back to the General Reserve in Central Europe. In this sense, the great battle between the Dnieper and the Dunnets may be called, from the German point of view, a battle of disengagement. That was Major George Fielding Elliott, Columbia's military analyst. Now, here's a message from our sponsor. In providing the armed forces with radio and electronic equipment that will stand the strain of battle and do the almost impossible tasks required by war, Admiral Engineers condensed years of research into the space of a few months. Discoveries were made far ahead of time in the two great plants, which in peacetime made Admiral the world's largest manufacturer of radio-phonograph combinations with automatic record changers. And the best of these new discoveries will be found in the Admiral of the future, 
but the Admiral of the future won't be produced as long as the armed forces need Admiral-built communications and electronic equipment, so make your present radio last for the duration. Ask your Admiral dealer to check it twice a year regularly. Admiral dealers have the backing of the Admiral organization, and that's especially important in the matter of obtaining replacements for vital parts in these days of shortages. Admiral dealers are experts who can anticipate trouble, and by so doing, order a replacement for any vital part immediately. Probably have it in time to keep your radio giving tip-top performance without missing even one favorite program. Call your Admiral dealer tomorrow. Ask him to check your radio twice a year regularly. You'll be glad you did. Congratulations to the Campfire Girls of America who are celebrating the 31st birthday anniversary of their organization this month. These 321,000 girls are contributing much to the war effort by their work in salvaging materials, selling war bonds, aiding the Red Cross, and many other important duties. The Campfire Girls need women who will volunteer as leaders to help them expand their work for victory. Get in touch with your local Campfire office or write National Headquarters 88 Lexington Avenue, New York City. World News Today is brought to you each Sunday at this hour by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. Be sure to listen again next Sunday when Admiral brings you World News Today by shortwave, direct from the leading news centers of the world. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The WBBM Air Theater Radio Building, Chicago. Two drops, penetral nose drops, hit directly at the sneezy stuffiness of Head Cole's misery. Use only as directed. At first warning, use genuine prescription-type penetral nose drops. Quality guaranteed by Plow Incorporated. General bottle, 25 cents. Even greater savings in larger sizes. Get P-E-N-E-T-R-O. Penetro nose drops. The time, 2 o'clock.